everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you are well. It has been crazy this past week with all the mass shootings that has been happening in the U.S. I don't have too much to add other than what a previous guest of this show, Darren Idea, recently posted, which is that the people of the global majority needs to unite to end white supremacy, that too many have adopted white supremacy as their ideals, their love, their body, their mind, their work, their art, their heart, and their soul. This is something we all have to work on as the global majority. This work never ends. Don't be afraid to find someone to talk to about these topics. These discussions need to be out in the open. With that in mind, stay safe wherever you are. For today, I am interviewing Kathy Shang, a poet born to Hmong refugees from Laos and is the seventh daughter of 15 brothers and sisters. She is the author of Poor Anima, the first full-length collection of poetry published by a Hmong American woman in the United States. More recently, Kathy was awarded a 2020 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship. Kathy's other honors include a Vermont Studio Center Fellowship, a Roxanne Gay Fellowship in Poetry, and a Nadia Eisenberg Fellowship at McDowell. I met Kathy over a year ago at Vermont Studio Center, and we bonded over meals late-night chats, and Houdini the cat. Kathy had a very calming presence, which belies the complex thoughts she reveals in her writing. Our conversation goes deep into Kathy's family history, an important part to understanding the influences of Kathy's poetry. As Kathy describes it, her body of grief work is an ode to the inability to return home as descendants of illiterate diasporans, interrogating as well as creating myths around mother, death, and gardens. We also discuss being vulnerable, transparent family stories, and the acceptance of grief. Be warned that this is an intense episode. Take care, stay safe, and I hope you enjoy it. This weather lately, the gloomy weather, is reminding me of that (laughs) snowy kind of, (laughs) yeah, really dreary weather. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it feels very strange that you know I I blinked and now it's October. I think a lot of a lot of people in this country are feeling that. But yes, so I would like to start and open the conversation uh, with the poem that I had published in the spring of 2019 by Tor House. Uh, it was actually submitted as a poem for one of their contests, the Tor House Prize, I believe okay. is what they call it. And um, I didn't win it, but I uh, was chosen as an honorable mention. And it's a poem I don't think I've actually read out loud to anyone before. I, I may have read it once in a past reading mm-hmm. somewhere in Columbus, um, Ohio, where I'm currently residing. But so it is called Therefore, and it is a poem I suppose you can say for and after my uh, late brother, he passed in 2014, he died of cancer. So I've been writing a lot of grief poems uh, and this was one of the first early grief poems that I was writing. This was before my mom passed. And so 
it, it's been, wow, 2014, it's been a long, it's feels like a very long time mm. since 2014. And um, so I, I'm excited to kind of revisit this poem because it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, so it's called Therefore. In a dream, I lay beside my dead brother. We are grinning, absolving our hearts in wide orbit. But in dreams, there is no such thing as forgiveness. We extend this news to our father, who is currently living in the highest tower. When the news reaches him, he brings down every corner of the house. We come to be loyal exactly like this. Swelling above the eyelids, we let our gods see us. We are the meat of their foundation, the wells of their drinks. So why can't I still my mouth? Opening and forgiving terms too young to be songs, but I feel them plotting. How revolting. We let them see us small, though we mean ill. Even the trees, dirt, and waters pray for us. For a time, our clothes bubbled with thick silver coins, our ears heavy with acetylene rocks. Mild curses giving us the impression we are well. My brother reminds me gently of a tale long forgotten, our father reenacting in a game of charades. In the scene of a great house, he stands on an imaginary rock, his arms stretched heavenward, his mighty palms bulbous, arthritic, and touching. He completes the roof by looking chin up. We guess and guess the name of the ancestor. Tu nu, tu ja, tu non. When we run out of guesses, father spins his grief into a ball, a metal hide, olive, sealed with a pin. We bring our mouths to this hive and promise it life. But we are always in a hurry, my brother shaking, my father catching fire to light us through. Well, thank you, Kathy. I don't know if this is common, but I really enjoy listening and reading poems at the same time. So it was really nice that you sent me the PDF of the text. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I was thinking, do you, do you have a preference for how your poems should be seen? Should they be heard, read, both at the same time? Sure. I think if there is an opportunity for me to provide text, I am always happy to do that for yeah. accessibility purposes. But also um, I feel like there is there is an experience of reading the poem on the page. And there's also the experience of listening to it. Yeah. Um, and I think it was actually Sarah Oddsley um, mm -hmm. at Vermont Studio Center. We had this very brief uh, chat about poetry readings. I think there's there's always the idea that, oh, poetry being read out loud is really hard to follow um, because you can't see the line breaks or you can't see the form. Yeah. But she had said that uh, poetry readings, well, they're they're an art form. They, they really are. And so it, it's an experience and it requires you to pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know. I, I think, you know, again, I'm happy to always do both, um, especially if there's an opportunity or I've been requested to provide text. Yeah. Always happy to do that, but 
I also have done readings, of course, where it's like I'm reading alongside a slew of other poets and it's like, a, you know, read your one to two poems and then yeah. get off, get off the stage yeah. <laughs> and, and move on. So, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm happy to accommodate when and where I can. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm thinking about a lot of things. I mean, you talk about this in some of um, your bio, but also in reading your poems. I mean, some of the things I think about are like this idea of ancestry, ghosts and dreaming. I've been thinking about that recently as well, and reading different texts about that. So yeah, there's something that I want to um, ask you more about. But before we go there, I was planning to go, you know, all the way back to beginning. And, you know, you talk a lot about how you see your poetry potentially as, you know, maybe an extension of songs and stories of your family and your ancestors. So I was wondering whether, yeah, you could talk a bit about, I guess, growing up in Fresno and what was that like and how that sort of led you down poetry? Sure. Yeah. Oh, Fresno. Um, you know, it's it's a place where I was born and raised. And my family, actually, when they first came to the U.S., I believe, they landed in San Francisco because it was one of, the, and this was 1982, January okay. 1982. And mm-hmm. I believe San Francisco was, had, um, I think it was one of the only places that had international flights coming in, huh. I think from around the world. And so I don't know very much about how all this happened or why it chose, you know, why San Francisco was the main place or the main hub, but that's where my family first landed mm-hmm. um, after coming from the Thai refugee camp Ban Vinai. Um, actually, so they were in they were in Panatni Kum, and then no, sorry, uh, it's it's always I, I'm trying to trace like my family's lineage and also like how we came. It's it's really tricky because for me the the furthest I suppose I can go back is just the refugee camps. I don't even know our family history beyond that. Mm. Um, I don't remember the names of the villages my parents lived in, but anyway, so in January. Uh, 1982, my my parents and my siblings, my four older siblings, they landed in San Francisco, and then I believe they moved to Portland, Oregon. Oh, I don't okay. know why. I'm not sure, but they they were kind of settled there for a bit. I think for maybe like half a year, and then they moved to Fresno because that's where I think a lot of our relatives had moved. And being refugees, I think they were terrified. Um, they wanted to be closer to family, yeah. closer to a community that made sense for them. So they moved to Fresno, I guess in 83, or actually, sorry, same year, 82. And I was born in 89. So it was uh, quite a while already when my family had established their life and their roots in Fresno by the time I came along. And I just... Growing up in Fresno, I remember being surrounded by a lot of family, whether they were aunts, uncles, my own siblings. Um, We had cousins and aunts and uncles who lived there too. So it was a pretty close-knit community. I could walk, you know, five minutes to just down the road and I'd be, you know, at my elementary school. Actually, it was like a two-minute walk. Yeah, so it was very, everything was very close by and it was better for our parents anyway because, you know, I think... For them, they were still really trying to navigate living in this country. Um, yeah. And so everything being close by was very ideal. School being close by was good. I think if you walked like maybe 10, 15 minutes, there was like a little grocery store. Yeah. My parents, my you know, they being farmers from Laos, you know, naturally when 
they came here, they made sure that they had land very close and available to them. And at first that started out as just their backyard and their little garden. Yeah. Um, so they would grow all kinds of things or try to grow things that they used to eat and, you know, in Laos. And so all kinds of veggies and greens and medicine. I can't tell you the names of them because some of them, my mom, I remember she would say to me, oh, Kathy, you know, this plant, uh, this medicine, you can't get anywhere. You have to know someone you know, to be able to plant this. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, it always made me kind of laugh because it's, it was like a sense of pride. Like it, you had yeah. to network and you had to really know if you wanted some kind of essence of home mm. um, or, or of the former country. And so, you know, my, my folks, they were, they were vegetable pickers, you know, they spent a lot of many years and still to this day farming outside so at first my folks started out as vegetable pickers you know um but my father has owned some farmland now for i think over a, a decade and it's just him and my stepmom you know farming and growing all these um so they, they grow a wide variety of things mainly green beans um thai chilies but most of these crops they grow for like they give, they send them to other countries like oh, my really? dad. Yeah, they'll they'll send them to Korea, they'll send them to China, um, oh. and Japan. And so I think it's kind of incredible how far, you know, something as simple as a, a small land that my dad got and turned into. I can't remember how many acres he owns, but um, I feel embarrassed. Like I should know all these things, but I just don't. I'm just like, oh yeah, my. Partners. I don't even know what the size of an <laughs> acre is, really. <laughs> no, like in my I, head, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I have I have trouble conceptualizing one acre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and and um, I go home once a year uh, to Fresno, and if I'm lucky. But you know, with this pandemic, I actually was not able to return home this mm. year. So it made it really. It was hard. It was sad. I've been going home once a year for like maybe a decade now or more. Yeah. It's kind of the only time I, I do get to visit. It's it's always me going home to visit them because, you know, I'm one person and my whole family is like a hundred people. Yeah. And so you have a lot of siblings, right? You're like 15. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I have lots of siblings um, in that line. I'm like towards the younger end. So I'm like the, how do I um, say it? I'm like the 12th born, but I'm like the seventh, yeah, the seventh daughter in the family, but the 12th born. Wow. Um, that's 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 insane so like was it i can't imagine growing up with that many siblings yeah it yeah it was wild you know lots of fighting i'm I'm sure (laughs) like yeah and alliances i assume form between different siblings right oh yes oh yes yeah that's you know i think that's one of the things that um makes me laugh and cry at the same time you know when i think about like oh wow when i was younger I used to be so close to a certain sibling, you know, but then we grew up and there were differences and now it's like, you know, it's just, it's just been like that. And um, yeah, I, I love my siblings. I I love them all. So growing up, so did your parents learn how to speak English in in the U S they, they hit the ground running. Yeah. Uh, So I think when they were in Thailand, they were in this, so between transitioning to the U S they were in this other camp called Panatni Kum, and I think they called it like the transition camp or transition center mm-hmm. where like refugees are about to go elsewhere and become, I mean, it took a, I think, I, I don't, again, I don't know how the paperwork for like citizenship works, but I think it took a t- some time for my parents to eventually get their um, U.S. citizenship. Mm. Um, they had to go through a series of tests, but I think while they were in that transition camp, they may have learned like 
very, very basic English.、Um, maybe some common greetings. Right.、Um, maybe some names for common things in a household, like a toilet, for、right. example, or light. So, but I would say for sure that in the U.S. was when they had to really.、Um, yeah, learn. Learn, learn, yeah, for it to make sense. Though my mother's, they they were they were pretty good actually at speaking English, but it made them uncomfortable if they didn't have to use it. They wouldn't use yeah. it. Yeah. Often they kind of like would defer to the children to like speak on their behalf.、Um, what What is the language that they speak? Sure, my family we speak Hmong. Okay. And yeah, so、um, my dad between my parents, I think my father is probably the. Was proficient in reading and writing、mm. um, in English, and but my dad also knows like five or six other languages.、Too. Really? Yeah, he knows. You know, he knows Lao. He knows Thai. He knows a little bit of Vietnamese. I think a little bit of Cambodian,、uh, the Cambodian language. Wow.、Um, I, I I think I just remember growing up in a way where、um, Fresno is such a diverse community, all kinds of bodies there, really,、um, and so. But I do remember being.、Um, At some point, we would shop um, or um, go to like a relative's house that was like in a Khmer community or a Cambodian community,、mm-hmm. and my father would speak to some of the people there. And I remember thinking, "Dad, what? You know how to like communicate with them? That's that's crazy." And he would say, "Yeah, you know, I I know how to speak、um, several languages."、Um, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I think, and also maybe because my father was a you know a boy soldier, you、mm-hmm. know, being he. I think survival is all he really knows. They and they were in Thailand because there was a, a civil war in Laos. So there, have, I think there have been a long history of civil war in Laos. But、mm. then,、um, when the Vietnam War happened, the U.S. kind of said they weren't going to meddle or in, involve themselves with the war.、Um, but they somehow, you know, kind of well, they 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 set this secret operating like base in Laos、mm. and. Recruited the local, you know, men and women, hill tribes, men and women that included my dad, you know.、Um, but long before the Vietnam War, my dad had been, I believe, really fighting in the civil war、um, in Laos for a while.、Um, there was turmoil in every village. I think I, I wish I knew more,、um, but it's so hard tracking like. My family's history is like, oh, t- go talk to that uncle. Oh, this uncle knows more. Yeah.、Um, and I'm like, oh,、um, and it's strange because it seems to be always men, the males in the family that are the historians, so the、mm. people who keep track of like the Zhang family. But you know, I I've never really made an active effort to ask any of my uncles because I, there's that language barrier. Like I can speak and understand Hmong, but not. Very well, you know. I I couldn't carry a a formal conversation with like an elder. I,、mm. That would just oh gosh, that's so hard. Like anyway, um, yeah. So my my parents they they speak Hmong,、um, but they also speak English. My dad he's the more proficient one in other languages, and I think just because of his long history of having been in the war in several wars for so long,、um, having survived, and I think. Um, picking up languages, it's just a, it's just another way、yeah. to has, to live. He has a skill. Yeah, yeah, learned how to do it. And your mom, you know, how how did they meet? So again, I I've heard stories that so my father was originally married to my stepmother. Um,、mm-hmm. that was his first wife. It was an arranged marriage. Those are very common in Hmong culture, arranged marriages, and and so my father is actually、um, his his parents. Left and or died when he was really young. I think my dad was about two years old when his father died of illness, 
And then I believe his, his mom just kind of left him and his younger brother for another, another man, another marriage. So really my father was taken care of by his grandmother. So my father married my stepmom. My stepmom, I believe what um, is my father's first cousin, mm-hmm. but the only way my father could marry and maybe have a name and make a name for himself was if it was if he was married. And there is this idea that if you're an orphan, no one would marry you because there's no honor in that. Mm-hmm. Because especially, I guess, as, as a male, as a man, where if you marry the, the woman traditionally is protected spiritually by the man's families, like spiritual counsel, things like that. So, you know, because my father had no parents, it would be hard for him to marry. And so it was this kind of really unfortunate situation where my father really, I think, viewed my stepmom as a sister. You know, they grew up together, they played, but, you know, it was this kind of really strange, unfortunate situation where, you know, this was kind of, if this was a means of survival, this was it. Yeah. And so my dad married my stepmom, but um, they had trouble conceiving. They, ha- I think my father said that the first two, two or three children they had, they lost. And, and so because my um, stepmom couldn't conceive very well, my, they ended up arranging my dad to marry my mom. Um, so my dad married my stepmom. And my dad married my mom, which my mom was very fertile. <laughs> she, you know, she, she had, um, so there was, my four older siblings were born in Laos. Um, mm. One was born in Thailand in the refugee camp. And then there was a third wife that my father married. But again, to my knowledge, they never did have children. And when they came to the United States, this third wife, she chose to stay behind and be with her family in the refugee mm. camps because life was just so unknowable in the U.S. You know, they were scared. They had no idea if connection would be possible. You know, you live in like a refugee camp. How do you, you know, you don't just call someone up and chat with them. It was really hard to kind of, so, so she um, elected to stay behind. And then eventually years later, she came to the U.S. and she lived, she lives in Fresno. I actually met her. Wow. I, th- I think for the first time. Wow. But yeah, so it was really odd because she's a very pleasant woman, very kind. At my uncle's funeral in 2015, I met her because my mom at the time was like, oh, Kathy, do you, um, do you know so-and-so? And so I was like, well, who is she? And my mom laughed and she's like, you don't know? That's, that's your other mom. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so she told me very brief history. Wow. Like, yeah. Yeah. She's like, you know, um, yeah, your dad was married to her for a short time. So I was like, wait, mom, like, do I have any other like half siblings or, <laughs> you know, or you know, step siblings or, yeah. and she's like, oh no, no, no. Um, your dad, you know, they, they never did have children, but she's a very nice lady. And I just thought like, oh, okay. And I spoke with her. She was very sweet. and it, But it was just like, wow, we did this long in my life to find out that yeah. I could have had, you know, a third mom. But, wow. but how, yeah. So in terms so it's such a long way to answer. Like, how did your dad and mom meet? Uh, it was an arranged marriage. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, but it's complicated. I mean, I don't, I don't think I know that much about my family. I probably should ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah some well some families are very very protective or scared yeah. of talking about certain histories that they want to forget some you know there's the idea that when people came to this country they wanted to leave everything behind yeah a sort of rebirth yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm lucky i guess in a way that my parents were so open and transparent about those kinds of things and stories that i i think they just really wanted us to know because 
my parents totally suffer from PTSD, but, you know, as a way of coping, that's why it was important for them to be close by with other Hmong families so yeah. that there was this kind of sense of, I don't know, unity uh, in a place that we can never really truly call home. But, you know, I mean, it's so it's been 45 something years now since, since, they, the, since they arrive. Um, well, since the Vietnam War. Um, yeah. And um, but so my parents really I, I feel like the way they've been grieving um, and this is kind of my answer towards like, how did I get into poetry um, or how I got into poetry? I mean, all my life, I just remember my parents really, really mournful, mournful people who I felt like they were full of regrets, full of deep sorrow for the people that they couldn't bring along for the people who died along the way every time i think of my parents survival in the laotian jungles as they were hiding from the Viet Cong, like it just it really blows my mind um i i, I try to i try so hard to imagine because there were several several moments where you know my, my folks had to be separated my father so women and children you know, were um, very vulnerable, but it was usually the men that they wanted killed and captured. And, you know, mm-hmm. so often my dad, because they didn't want the men who didn't want to endanger the, the women and children, often my dad would split up from my two mothers and the chi- the children and just mm-hmm. say like, in, in like two weeks, find me here, find us here in this part of this jungle and it's kind of like there's no map you know there's no telephone there's no cell phone and so it really was like when I think about that kind of backstory I suppose to my parents it it also is my backstory and that I feel so much for my parents and even though I wasn't born during the war uh, because I'm only one generation away from my parents experiencing the war, it feels like my own history. It feels like my own personal history. Mm-hmm. And so my parents, you know, I, I grew up watching them really struggle, I think, with just trying to make do, trying to be okay with things that are yeah. and um, and the things that aren't, you know, possible anymore. They, I've watched them grapple so much with language, with with assimilation, with with all kinds of things that come with being, you know, a refugee or an immigrant. And in the Hmong culture, there is this art form that um, is called song poetry or kutsia. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of a very special art form because it's, uh, unless you wield like a really, if you can wield the Hmong language very well, you can speak it, you can, you can, um, so, so, so there's the speaking part of it, but what am I trying to say? It, so it's an art form that really requires you to be very skillful with words. And my dad, you know, he was raised by a lot of older Hmong men. And so my dad kind of learned to speak very formally. My dad learned how to speak like an old man ever since he was young, <laughs> pretty much. And so he, you know, very naturally, you know, he, he, he's a good singer. I've only heard him sing a couple times in my life, really. But my oh. mother's, you know, it, it's, I, I have described it to others before as like the Hmong blues, where there's, it's this improvisational song that you sing about your sorrows. It's like a... It's, it's this longing for, mm. for the no longer there, for, for maybe what is here, but mm-hmm. it can't quite be obtained. It's like a very, it's, a, it's like a sorrowful art form, but it can also be used to court, 
you know, you can use these songs as courting mm. for courting. And I, it, it's, I, again, I don't know very much about like these songs themselves in terms of singing it myself. Like my parents, my moms, they tried to teach me how to sing when I was younger. And I was like, what? I don't, I can't, <laughs> I, it makes no sense. You know, I don't, I, I think because they wanted so much for a way to communicate their grief mm. that, and, and, and just the, the ways in which how they used to live, all these customs and traditions, they really wanted to pass that on to us. But I think they kind of knew it was not going to be very successful, especially yeah. the children who were born in the U.S. So, you know, here we were living in Fresno and always being surrounded by family, by cousins. Um, but these songs stayed with me a lot because they weren't, I guess you could say when, when, when anyone sang, if my mom sang, with my stepmom or dad saying, you just listened. If you were there, you were nearby, you just sat down, you'd listen. And it's really meant to be for an audience, but there's also the belief that if no one is there to listen, that the wind will carry its words to its listeners, wherever you are. And so it's this really beautiful, poetic, like way of living and way of surviving and way of grieving that stayed with me. And so I think it made sense for me that poetry became so natural. I was very inclined to like learn more about language, how it works and, and and how it builds relationships with things in the world, with people. And so, you know, there's also that my own language barrier and my own like um, self-consciousness of how do I speak to my parents? How do I speak to my friends? And I think I tried really hard to imitate my parents, but it just didn't work. And my voice really, I don't know, I struggled with it a lot. But I also was very intimidated of English. You know, um, my whole life, I still am really scared of English. Me too. Um, yeah, it's it's just, a, it's a very scary thing. I think we may have briefly had this conversation in Vermont Studio Center about like English being this, I don't know, for me, I, I mean, you know, I was in ESL for a few years when I was a kid. And then eventually, you know, I Ironically, you know, for being somebody who was so afraid of the English language and like standardized testing, those things freaked me out all the yeah, time. An- analogies, metaphors, <laughs> A to B and then A to B for your multiple choice. I'm like, that, that shit doesn't make sense. <laughs> it, yeah. So, you know, school testing, all of that just really intimidated me. It scared me a lot because I just kind of felt like I was always measured. Like you're mm-hmm. always being measured by some system, by some person. And um, I always felt, in a different way, I always felt like I was measured by my parents too. But so you grew up, you grew up speaking Hmong, and then at some point you transitioned to English once you went to school. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And so um, I would I mean I would say for sure when I lived at home, I was able to speak it better. <laughs> but yeah. um, but when I'm away from home, like living in Ohio, I I don't get to speak Hmong to anybody yeah. <laughs> except for maybe to my dog um, or to my, my white partner. Sometimes I'll exclaim things in Hmong really? that he's come, he's come uh. to understand and know. Um, uh. <laughs> but it's, and, and it's weird because when I do speak it, it really, um, I've said this before to some people, when I speak Hmong, it really just feels like I'm imitating my parents. Like I'm trying to remember how my dad or my mom would say a certain thing and uh-huh. I would say it exactly like that and so when I speak among I feel like I'm really just speaking from memory yeah. um, and not really because I feel like I know it I know I know Hmong but deep down I I feel like it's never going to be good enough like yeah. I'm never going to be seen by a Hmong elder as like oh she's really Hmong 
um, there's this, so that's what I also mean by like the sense of measurement, like how long right. are you, do, are you yeah. this loyal daughter? Are yeah. you doing all these things that make a Hmong daughter a very successful Hmong daughter? I mean, for me, I, I chose higher education, like many of my siblings, um, many of us have college degrees, you know, so it wasn't uncommon that like, I wanted to go to college. In fact, it was expected to go to school um, beyond your par- your, high school. Par- your parents expected that of you? Yeah, I mean, I think only because it was like, that's that's um, for our generation and for our people and, and our time, it was like, that was that was the measurement of success, going yeah. to school, getting degrees. Mm-hmm. And um, But my parents were, were kind of, you know, in, in the dark about what degrees really did. Yeah, what they um, meant, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, other than they just knew like, oh, degrees equals a job and that's good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, poetry, it, it's such a muddied answer. But, you know, Fresno really informed my poetry. I'm living there for so many. Well, I lived there for 17 years and then I moved away for college. And were you were you reading poetry while you were in Fresno or did that transition no. sort of slowly happen? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I didn't even read poetry very actively until so I read some poetry when I was in middle school. I think like for my English classes, I read like, you know, white male poets that were taught in, in the <laughs> curriculum um and then in high school too you know like i um actually it was in high school where i felt like my love for poetry really really blossomed where i i really like i had always loved poetry um and and, and i liked it but i was also intimidated by it because from what i was reading i thought i i, I could never do that too yeah. um but in the ninth grade you know it was in my english my ninth grade english class we had to, we had just finished reading Shakespeare. And um, so one of the first like creative writing projects that we mm. had to turn in assignment was write a sonnet. And yeah, so, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote a sonnet and apparently it was sad as hell because my teacher at the time, I remember when I turned it in, she was like, are you oh okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, Are you, oh my gosh, can, can I speak with you? And I was like, oh my, I thought I was in trouble actually. Wow. Um, it's just like, I read your poem and you know, um, I, I just wanted, it's, it's, um, are you okay? You know? And I thought, oh yeah, I'm fine. You know, but, and you know, and I remember like going back and reading that poem, I thought, oh shit, it is really sad. Um, <laughs> it is, it, I don't, I don't know what I was trying to communicate, but I think uh-huh. I was a very sad I've always been a very sad individual. I, I always tell people that like all my life, I remember always feeling sad. And I, mm. and I feel like, I don't know, I, I didn't even, re- I don't even know if I really believe this in the way that like my parents believe it for them, but you know, like reincarnation um, mm. in the Hmong world, there's the belief that, you know, you get reincarnated. And, and I often wonder like, if I was like the reincarnation of like my parents' sadness, because yeah. uh I just always felt so much. I, I I don't know how to explain it, but ever since I was young, I was always very, very receptive to people's grief. Mm. And um, I just really, really felt it. And I didn't know how to communicate that, you know, to anybody. Because, you know, when you're when you're like four, <laughs> you don't really have quite yeah, the, the words the, for yeah, that. The words, yeah, yeah, you don't really have the jargon for it yet. But all my life growing up, you know, being around my relatives, knowing my parents' history, yeah. um, knowing about the war and how much it devastated not just my family but but tons and tons of other Hmong families across the world who are living around the world now because of the war i i think there's just i don't know how to say it but um a collective grief you mean 
Yeah, I yeah. I think it was something that just really culminated. And then like in ninth grade, I wrote that poem and it was like mm-hmm. me kind of announcing to the world I was really, really sad and I needed somebody to know. So I think I kind of like secretly wanted yeah. wanted somebody to witness me. Did it feel normal? Like it was because like you, when you, your response was like, yeah, I'm fine. So I guess, is it implied that like you just, your entire family had experienced it. So like, it just seemed like that's just how things happened. I think, I think for me, I definitely internalized it as just what every Hmong kid probably went yeah. through, but not everybody liked to talk about it or maybe didn't know they could talk about it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I, I feel like maybe writing that sonnet was my plea for like, please, someone can, can you like, listen to me? I'm really sad. And so when, when she, when my teacher asked if I was okay, I felt very defensive and very scared, kind of like, oh yeah, no, I'm, I, I didn't, I didn't want trouble to be brought to my house. Like I didn't want hmm. my parents to be alerted, you know, that something is wrong with Kathy. And it's just, I never, never wanted to trouble my parents. And so I always pretended like I was okay, even yeah. when I totally wasn't, you know, for sake of like for saving face. I didn't want my parents to lose face over, over a poem, you know, and, and yeah. not only that, like. My parents, they couldn't conceive or understand why writing poetry was important, I guess. Mm. Like, like they, it's not like they didn't believe it was important. They couldn't understand how it could be. Right. Because I think, you know, like sung poetry is just a way of living and something that my parents did. And so when they slowly kind of found out that I was writing poems, you know, and they asked me why, I just said, I don't know. Um, you can think of it as an equivalent to like, you know, song of poetry. I, yeah. I can't sing it. So I write it. And they were yeah. like, they just kind of went with it. They're like, okay, sure. You know? <laughs> um, and, but they never did oppose it. You know, like my parents never said, don't write poetry. They were just yeah. kind of like, why is this girl, why is this daughter of ours? Like right. writing, <laughs> yeah, writing poetry. Um, yeah. It, so it's, it's a long, it's, it's complicated to answer like why yeah. poetry, how poetry, but totally. I mean, my upbringing, my life, my parents, um, Fresno, all of it really yeah. informs poetry for me. So then when you went to, did you continue poetry in college? Did you end up majoring in poetry? Uh, yeah. So after high school, I went to Ohio Northern University in Ada, Ohio. Um, and I majored in creative writing poetry. And, you know, again, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but my teachers in high school had such faith in me, like, they loved what I was writing then. And they thought you have a voice, you have yeah. stories to tell, you should tell it. And I thought, okay, you know, um, yeah, why not? Yeah. So I did it. And you know, my parents were kind of like, Oh, why didn't you go into like engineering, you know, <laughs> yeah. or like your brothers. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, well, um, it, you know, dad, I'm just not very good at science. I love science, but I'm not really good at science and, and numbers. So, um, I, I, I decided to go with, with words, with language. And he was just like, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, so I pursued it for, you know, I, I went to undergrad four years and then after ONU, I went to grad school. I went to the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. Um, it's Both a, it was very ex- different than Fresno. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally not Fresno at all. It was such a culture shock when I came to Ohio, you know, like, because Ada, Ohio is like, yeah, Northwest Ohio. It's like 
kind of the top point of the state, but still very rural area, you know. Um, no sun. <laughs> there, there, yeah, I mean, there, there was some sun, but it was cold. And yeah, yeah it was yeah. in the winter times, they were pretty rough. But yeah, you know, there, were, there weren't very many, uh, I didn't meet a single Hmong person, you know, when I was in Ada. Um, there were very few Asian people I met. Yeah, so so I, I, was in, I was at ONU for four years, and then I went to UM for two years. It was a two-year MFA program also poetry and still you know I, I knew that I loved poetry and I knew that it, it was really big it was bigger than me and I always felt that um, but I always felt so lonely as well because I didn't know any other Hmong poet you know mm-hmm. it was actually in undergrad that I found out there were other Hmong poets and it was a really really weird um, in the U.S. or you mean in the world in the, in the U.S. Okay. Um, and one of them was, is my cousin you know really and, like yeah, from, from Fresno yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Wow. So it was, I know, yeah, I think I was a junior or senior in undergrad when I got an email from my cousin. And it's funny because, like, there's some weird family tree. I'm actually his aunt and he's my nephew, but he's like so much older than me. <laughs> um, it's, but we, I just say cousin because it's, yeah, it's easier to say yeah. that. Sorry, Andre, I always have to bring that up. Um, so Andre is my cousin who, um, he's a poet and he reached out to me. Oh, wow. And uh, via email, he, you know, it was like, hi, I don't know if you remember me. I'm your, you know, I'm your cousin, Andre. Um, you know, I lived behind the street where you and your family grew up. I used to play with your older brothers and sisters. You may remember my younger siblings. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, Andre, I remember you. And um, he was saying, so I found out about um, your poetry through your English teacher. So he, he reached out and he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a poet, too. And I'm part of this group. It's called Hmong American Writers Circle. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, we're trying to like foster and nourish Hmong voices. And we're, we're going to come out with an anthology of Hmong voices. And so we were hoping you would submit work. So he mm-hmm. was soliciting work from wow. me, but also kind of like introducing himself like, hey, we're family. Right, right. And so it was a really weird moment for me because the whole time I'd been in Ohio, I was so sad and so alone and like, wow, you know, is being a Hmong poet, is writing poetry, should I be doing this? You know, because, Mm. you know, what I was reading, who I was reading and studying, nobody looked, you know, or sounded like me. And so, or or like my family, nobody sounded like my family. So it, it was a very, I don't think that we'll ever know this, but it meant so much to me when I read that email because I thought, um, I'm not alone. There's there's other Hmong writers. So that was how I actually connected with other Hmong mm. writers because I had no idea that there was a small little budding group in right. Fresno that was really trying to cultivate Hmong voices wow. and bring awareness. But then, yeah, so, so, and then I went on to my MFA program feeling a little bit empowered, you know, thinking like, yeah, there are other Hmong writers, but it was still lonely because it was Missoula, Montana. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, I met some great people there, but yeah. it was like, ultimately, I was very, I was just, yeah, lonely is the word. And, you know, so I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I, I think I do, but I, I don't know if I really do. And it's, it's just going back. And I think maybe I feel this way because of the structure of the publishing industry that kind of gives the impression that like, unless you're actively publishing or um, yeah. having a bunch of gigs, then you're really not relevant, you know? And it, it it's hard because I'm not, I'm, I'm a pretty shy person. I don't really um, 
I don't advertise like myself or my work. I'm not very good at that. I just mm -hmm. kind of prefer to like, oh, you know, if you if you come across my work, that's really great. Yeah. But I don't really share my work that much. And so it's been hard being in this industry, kind of yeah. like, oh, I have a book published, but I don't really tell people about it unless I happen to be at a reading and then people find out about me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think as I, as I get older, I also feel like it's like less or I put less pressure on myself. I, you know, I think a lot about just like, maybe this is like, sometimes I, sometimes I question whether this is setting the bar too low for myself. But sometimes I'm also like, Hey, if I can keep making art until like I'm old, that's a success considering how many artists I know who stopped doing it after going to school, stopped doing it after going to grad school. Right. And it's like, you know, that's, that's in and itself some sort of success. Right. Cause you, yeah. that's, that's, that's why you got into it. And then I think sometimes when we get older again at grad school, we kind of lose track of why we started it. You know, it's like, Oh, I need to be famous. I need to be in magazines. I need to sell work or have books published or have monographs about stuff being made. And it's like, but you know, that's not like the, um, that's not why we got into it. And I think about this a lot when I go to like art fairs, I'm just like, nothing in here is why I think anyone who started art wanted to be an artist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, it's, it's strange because, you know, and whether uh, former interviews or just in passing conversations I've had at like past readings, um, it, I think something that is so rewarding to me, I think the most rewarding thing about writing poetry and, and I guess being in this industry, um, as I keep calling it, has been the, the responses that I, I guess my reading or my poetry elicits out of people, they'll come up to me and they'll say, wow, you know, my, my grandfather passed years ago and I never knew that I could use my poetry as a way to not stage my grief, but as a way to explore that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's so strange because to me, I feel like it, it is so um, natural for me to go to the page and just be vulnerable. But for some people, it is very hard to be vulnerable. They have to let down so many other walls and barriers first before they can get there. And so I feel like growing up in my household really allowed me to kind of nurture that in my brain, that when I went to the page, it was very easy for me to just, I don't know. Because your say, parents talked about it so often. Yeah, I think because yeah. my parents were so open and so transparent about their own grief and their own sadness that for me, I felt like there was no reason for me not to express mm. the same frustrations, the same sorrows if yeah. I had, you know, and so, and so, yeah, so people coming up to me saying that, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, writing about death could be actually so, um, so gentle and, and not as scary. And then it is always mm. scary. Like for me, it's always scary writing about my grief and writing about my mom, you know, who I loved so much. Um, and, uh, like, yeah, my, it, so it, it is always scary, but for some reason, I, I think what people don't realize is like, I, I have to go through such mental like obstacles to be able to say like, so casually, like, oh yeah, my mom died. She died in a car crash. Um, and when people hear that, they think, oh my gosh, not many, you know, not many of us are that daring or brave enough to say things like that, or to just talk about it in, mm -hmm. in our work. And but you seem to do it so effortlessly. And I'm like, you know, I think it's interesting that that's what people see. But for me, in my head, I'm like, I go through several panic attacks before I talk yeah. about, you know, talk about grief in the yeah. way that I do. But but I think 
So those conversations, the things that my poetry sparks at readings, those are the things that are most rewarding for me um, because it's, it's real connection with real people, yeah. people coming to me and saying like, Hey, I see you or, Hey, thanks for giving me, you know, the power to now be able to write these dark, you know, hard poems that I've wanted to write, you know? And so it, it, giving people permission to write is a really weird experience. Cause I'm thinking, you know, my whole life, I never asked anyone permission to write yeah. what I write. And so, but I don't know if it's because of the Western culture around, you know, the subject of death. These are hard topics that people don't like to talk about, or they, these are hush hush things that you don't talk about at dinner. You don't talk about at little, I don't know, cafe meetups. People want you to always be happy. You know, like when someone dies, someone always loves to say, oh, um, think of the good times or they're in a better place or mm -hmm. they're not they're not hurting anymore. And those things are really um, useless to me. I don't mm -hmm. I don't like hearing them because it's it's not it's not about that. Oh, my mom's not suffering anymore. It, it's the literal fact that the way my mom died really, really bothers me. Yeah. And, and the fact that she was alone. Um, so when you start to think about those kinds of things, I think, um, it, it makes it, you have questions, you have yeah. questions that you just can't not think about. Um, so yeah, it, you need a break. Yeah, no, um, yeah, I, I'm okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's been six years since my mom passed um, or sorry, four years. I'm thinking six because of my brother. Um, but so yeah, the, it's, it's been a long, it's been a long six years of grieving because when I was writing poetry for my brother, you know, um, and then, and then my uncle died and then my mom died and I, um, my grief poems for my brother just kind of stopped because then suddenly I was like shifting, uh, gears yeah. to like thinking about, thinking about my mom. And so, um, Grief is, has been really strange to explore and to write about. It is always really hard to to talk about and to think about, but it's also really weird. Like I, I'm, I'm always happy to have a conversation with someone, but but also the, at the expense of it, like it it is very exhausting. Yeah. So much of my work uh, over the last four years, six years, have mainly been grief poems, like the one that I read earlier today. You know, is a grief poem from my brother, and this past. The past couple of weeks, I've actually had to record some poems for like different different publications, and all of them have been grief poems too. And so I'm like, oh gosh, this whole month. Um, and not only that, like the the month of September, when my fellowship was announced, I was kind of really in disbelief about how I had been applying for this fellowship for so many years, and I had been applying. For, I think this um, this year was my eighth year trying. And when I got the news that, you know, I got the news that I was a finalist, I was like, yeah. oh, wow, I've never even made finalists. And just for the um, listeners, just to clarify, this is the Ruth Lilly Dor and Dorothy Sargent yes. Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship. <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah, for the Ruth Lilly Fellowship. Yeah, when I, when it was announced I was one of the finalists, it was, it was a lot to take in. I think I'm still processing it because, you know, I think in this pandemic, I, like I haven't seen anybody since like January, you know? Yeah. So, so I think when this news um, came, I was like, oh, okay. You know, like, that's great. I've never even made finalists, you know? And then when I found out I was, I was one of the, you know, five recipients, I thought, oh my gosh, this, this is great. But I, I didn't know how to immediately 
I still don't think I know how I'm feeling about it because the poems I had submitted to the Ruth Lilly uh, for the application, you know, these have been compiled grief poems I've been working on. And so, so, you know, it's, it made me feel like, wow, had my mom not died, I wouldn't have written all these poems about her that I'd submitted to the Ruth Lilly that I ended up getting the fellowship for. And so it, it's strange because I'm like, wow, if my mom also hadn't passed away, I wouldn't have met all these other people and had had all these other opportunities because yeah. of the work that I was doing. And so it's very bittersweet. It's very- Is that guilt? Yeah, it, it, it's, I, I feel guilty. I feel, I feel confused, but I also understand that this is just what is happening yeah. at this time in my life. Yeah. So I don't know what celebration really looks like. You know, it's, I think, I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of people don't know what that looks like right now in this yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Most, a lot of things that's happening in the world, there's not much to celebrate. Yeah. There, there are small, small things that I feel, you know, I'm, I try, I don't know. I, for being a very sad person, I try to also be, I don't want to say positive. I I dislike that word. Like be positive, good vibes only. I, yeah, I smile. Really, yeah. I, but I, I do still try to find the silver lining in things. Um, yeah. Just try to, I mean, you know, my puppy, I've been, so Ellie, my <laughs> dog, she is a year and four months yeah. now. And I can't believe that I have spent the last year and four months basically raising her. Um, and, um, but I also, in having Ellie, I've been kind of tracking my grief as well. Like how, how am I behaving or how am I reacting to things now that I have a dog? Um, Mm. at first it was kind of frustrating because when I was grieving, I wanted to be alone, but she, um, didn't understand that concept of course. So she would always try to comfort me. Mm. Um, and actually, I feel a little sad, but when she hears me pull like a like a facial tissue, um, she associates that with me crying or being sad, and she gets really worried. So she'll come up to me and oh, kind wow. of like, yeah. And so, and sometimes I have to laugh because it's like, Ellie, I just have to blow my nose. It's okay, yeah. Yeah. you know. But um, but it's really sweet how just so she's at, always at the ready, always at the ready to just come and comfort. And it's so, I think that was that has been an experience for me that. I still don't really know how to describe, but, but I feel so grateful that I have, I don't know, not a person that can actually see me, even though, you know, it's like, I'm just assuming that she knows I'm sad, (laughs) but, um, but I think, you know, she can feel the the change of energy in the air whenever I do get distraught. And of course it makes me feel better, you know, when she does comfort me. But so I've been thinking like, wow, I don't even know how I lived before I had a dog, how I handled my grief just because I mean, you know, my partner, I love him, but there's only so much I could share and tell. And sometimes when I have to cry, I, I, I just have to do it. And it's not to be like, it's not something to be concerned about. Sometimes I just have to like, let it yeah. out. And so, you know, when I try to do that now with a dog, I can't not do that without also laughing because then eventually she does cheer me up. Like when I'm really, yeah. really sad and have to have a cry. And she's like all in my face, trying to like lick my freaking tears. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, Ellie, it's okay, it's okay. But she she doesn't know that I that I'm feeling okay, and she just has to come and protect. And I think that's something that I a kind of gratitude that I, I will never know how to reciprocate. Like, yeah, and, and give back. I give her her belly rubs, and I brush her, and I feed her, and yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, it, it's been a very long year. 
VSC, you know, I'm thinking about those cold, cold snowy days. And to think that it's going to be, it's going to be winter here so soon. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I, oh, gosh, I, I will admit to, I have not worked on my manuscript very much since VSC. And the manuscript that you that's put on hold, that's like the follow-up to your previous book, right? Poor Anima. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I have a tentative title for it, but I think I'm probably going to change it. it. It's one of those things where like, I don't really know what the title really will be until the book is really put together. I have so many pages of poems that I don't think all of them will make it because I just feel like a lot of them were me just kind of drafting out, writing out what I needed to write. And so uh, all those poems, um, by the way, I wrote many of them, if not most of them, at McDowell when I was there for, it was 2017 yeah. when I was there. And um, I had drafted like 112 pages of poems. Wow. Yeah. And so that was the same batch of poems I brought with me to VSC to mm. like refine, revise, take poems out, write new poems. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of artists are trying to figure out these days what is their purpose or function in in these times, right? And and um, yeah, um, I was curious. Do you see your poems as a sort of communication? Um, I mean, you you mentioned it briefly as as like early on. You felt like you were reincarnated, and I was curious if you see how does that sort of interact? Sure. You know, I I really don't. I don't know that I believe in it to the extent that my parents believe and understand it and Mm. feel it, but I do feel there is a version that I am trying to commune with. I don't actively say I am writing and speaking with my ancestors because it feels so cheesy and weird to say that, but I also, um, but I I would not cheesy to me. (laughs) I I would not be surprised if I am in communication, but I wouldn't know. I, I really wouldn't know that I am. I just know that I have, things to say um it sounds so like to reduce it down to that it sounds so simple and and it does not do the feelings i have justice but in terms of ancestry like there's no way that the mong my family speaks and especially the mong that i speak is the same mong that my ancestors spoke Mm -hmm. you know it's so different like mong people depending on where they live the mong spoken is very different like mong people in rural parts of china I can't understand them. Hmm. So there's no way, if, even if I was pleading to them and talking to them that they would understand, or that's, that's what I'm saying. And that's what I think. Um, but my poetry, I, you know, I don't, I, I think I'm still discovering for myself the true purpose of writing for myself. Like hmm. other people think of it, um, may think of it as like, Oh, this is so exciting. And it, and it, it's, it's historic that, you know, Hmong publications are happening. Um, and it is, it is great. But for me, I think I'm still in the, in the questioning phase where I'm thinking like, what am I really trying to accomplish? Mm. Um, I mean, I, I hope that what I will accomplish or have already or will continue to is I would love to reach out to communities that feel like they don't have a voice in the literary industry you know, that, that, that's, that's a large part of it. But, you know, also for myself, like, what, what am I really writing these? Like, to whom am I really yeah, writing yeah, these for? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think I'm writing them really just largely for myself, because it's been a long, like journey of grieving. But I, but I know that, you know, the, the byproduct of putting out these poems is that it will reach out and, you know, resonate with others too. Right. So, right. so there's, there's that. And I, 
So I don't know, you know, to whom or for what I am writing other than that. Like it's without poetry, I really don't know what I would be doing. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine my life without it. So I think like, that's good enough. I just can't imagine my life without it. So when you also, you also made the leap, right? Because when you started your, I think you told me when you started the residencies with McDowell and Vermont Studio Center, that's when you decided to like quit your job and see how long you can go before you had to, you know, go back and you you lined up some residencies you got that uh huge fellowship which is great and amazing yeah you know oh yeah I honestly I think so I left my job in August 2019 and was like super scared because you know I thought oh my gosh I've never just left my you know job because I wanted to pursue poetry and but but I did it because I, I I had this feeling like I had to write my second book I had to it was this feeling I thought if I don't grasp this feeling right now, it'll be over. It'll be gone. Mm. And so I did it. But then I also happened to get a dog at the same time as I was leaving my job. Oh. And so then, you know, it became a full-time, instead of full-time writing and full-time poet, I became a full-time, like, you know, dog mom where I just <laughs> had to take care of my dog. But so, but I was, you know, reading and writing simultaneously, but just not as much as I had wanted to. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I, I guess you're right in that. You know, I I made a a decision that is not very easy for a lot of, you know, working artists and writers. Many of them cannot afford to leave their job at all. Uh, And so I feel very privileged that I was able to do that and that I have my partner, you know, to help support in the meantime. But also, you know, like the money I had saved from working, like I've been living off of that. And so, of course, the fellowship coming in was very handy, um, especially in this time. And so even if I had not left my job, actually, I would have been let go, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, so many people mm-hmm. got let go and my job was hourly, you know, it wasn't salary or anything like that. Yeah. And so it was like, if I had not quit in August, you know, uh, 2019, I probably would have been let go in January anyway. What, what, were, you, um, what, were, you, what were you doing? Uh, so I was at um, the University of Ohio State. Uh, mm. I was working there and it was great. You know, it was nice. But it just for me, I was I was ready to take on my poetry project. And yeah. so I, you know, made the, the, the decision to leave. And but then I thought to myself again, when lockdown happened in March, I thought, oh, I would have been let go anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah, cause yeah. just because, you know, so many funds were being cut across the department um, and across the university. And that was hard. That, that, I think that's been very hard for a lot of people. And so, you know, in thinking about that, I'm, I'm very, I feel very lucky and very privileged and fortunate that I was in a place in my life where I could leave my job and confidently pursue my work and and then, you know, that's how I wound up at VSC and... And McDowell and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, we, yeah, things line up in unexpected ways. Yeah, they certainly do. Has your dad heard you speak or say your poems? Um, so in 2015, when my book debuted, Poor Anima, I had a reading at Fresno State uh-huh. University and... Uh, my parents came, but I, I I largely, you know, spoke in English the whole time. I read my poems in English. Mm. I think from what I could gather anyway, you know, like my parents, they were they were proud. They were happy. You know, they thought they looked around the whole room and they thought, wow, there are all these people are here for just, happy. Yeah, just to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and so so that was kind of special. Like for me, I I really, I felt really guilty because I was like, oh, mom and dad, these poems are for you, but sorry, they're in English, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, um, but, you know, my father actually, um, there was a unique opportunity where my dad did get to hear my poetry 
in Hmong, but that was because one of my uncles helped translate oh, wow. my poem. So it was at my brother's funeral. I had written a poem for him. There was a kind of eulogy aspect to the funeral at some point where we all said some you know, yeah. words and thoughts. And um, but so prior to the funeral, my uncle uh, had found out about like, he knew that I, I was pursuing poetry and writing. And um, I had asked him, like, I was really scared, but I asked him, hey, would it be okay? Like, is it possible? Like, I want to read this poem from my brother at his funeral, but is it okay if you also like translate it? Like, like I'll read it in English, but then, but then you read it in Hmong and he was on board with it. And uh-huh. so, yeah, it was really great because um, I was actually like in tears because when he translated it, I thought, oh my gosh, that's how my poetry sounds in Hmong. That sounds great. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's beautiful. It's so freaking sad and lovely. Oh, this is really good. Um, and so, you know, so that was one time my, my dad actually did get to hear it. That's amazing. But, yeah. So my dad, my mom, my parents, they did get a chance to hear it in Hmong. And so, you know, I remember kind of asking them kind of like, hey, what did you think about it? <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. like, yeah, you know, it, it was good. Like, that's like the, the highest compliment you can get from your parents. Like, I feel like yeah. most Asian parents are like, yeah, it's good. You know, yeah. you're like, yeah. it, it's not, it, it's not anything more than that. And yeah. I guess for me, that was good enough too. I thought, okay, he, he, you know, he was receptive to it, but I feel lucky that I, you know, I, I feel like I am my father's daughter because he may not be, you know, he's not a scholar. He, he, he doesn't have any degrees, but the way he uses language and the way he views and feels like the world, I feel like I really inherited that from my parents. Yeah. And that's why poetry became and felt so natural to me and, and why it, it's always been easy for me to write very hard, vulnerable topics because I felt like they were really good teachers and letting me know that it was okay to be mm. vulnerable. So I, I really feel like I owe it to my parents. And and because my parents had no knowledge, no understanding of what literature meant, what it is, what it means, what it could mean for a Hmong community, for an oral culture like ours. And um, I, I really, really just kind of went with like the faith that whatever it is that I do, I, I think that they'll be okay as long as I don't jeopardize my health yeah. or the lives of others. Like my parents were always, they were that kind and respectful. Um, so I think that's the gratitude I speak of because it's like, sure, it would have been nice if my parents could have financially supported me in times when I was really young and in college. But um, and, and, you know, in, in a way I, they did when I came home, <laughs> they fed me and they gave me certain things to take back. But so, yeah, I feel like maybe gratitude looks very different for, for children of immigrants. And I don't know. I think for me, I, I'm just, I'm still discovering how to give back to my parents because I'm thinking, what can I even do? You know, like, I'll write them poems, you know? Yeah. Um, how, how can I give back all the things that they taught me that you can't learn anywhere else? And not every parent, you know, in a Hmong household was very open like my parents were. So again, the gratitude for their transparency hmm. and their just endless like labor of love and generosity in that regard, it, it moves me a lot. And I wish that I could give that back somehow, um, but I, I don't know how, like, I, I just don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think your poetry is doing something, I think it, in some way, right? No matter how small, but like, it's also intangible. We forget, right, you know, the 
the interactions that we have with people, the happiness, the grief, you know, all those different things, they're the like, intangible things that I think right now we are all trying to come to grasp with, right? Like the world has been, has been run by, you know, sort of capitalistic money sort of thing and everything is quantifiable. But I think, you know, there's something also that we keep forgetting about that's unquantifiable. Yeah. I think that for the rest oh, for the rest of the year, which is like not very long from now, I'm like no. looking at, it's like, <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to think what I can accomplish, what I can do yeah. for, for, you know, for friends and family, but, but for also for communities in need. And I'm, I'm really trying to, I've been asking myself, what can I do? What can I say to, to let people know that I am listening? I am paying attention and I, I had to, I had to meditate. I had to decompress. I had to remove myself from some of the spaces in order to understand for myself what it is that I need to do. Yeah. But you know, anyway, yeah, book two is, is very slowly happening. Uh, I hope to work on it some more before the year's over, but yeah. So, yeah. Well, it'll, so, it'll yeah. come out when it needs to come out. Right. I yeah. mean, and there's no need, I think, to rush things, right. Things take time and there's no pressure, I think in the long run. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to be taking my time with it because my first book, I wish I had more time with that actually. So I, I want to give myself that this time for, for this collection, just because I, there's a lot of research I want to do that hasn't happened. And so, but I've already written so many poems too. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? Do these poems just become a different book at a later time? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll see. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything I missed? No, I, I don't think so. I, um, no, I think so much for having me and, uh, I'm glad that, uh, I had the opportunity to finally sit down and, uh, and share my work with you. Cause when we were at VSC, the night I had read, you had your, your like university lecture. I think you had a, you had a presentation. Oh yeah. In Maine. Had, in yeah, Maine. Yeah, yeah. 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 I so, missed that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, do you want to get to hear me read? Yeah. So I thought I, I owed it to you to, oh. to be able to talk and, and share my work. No, there was no pressure. <laughs> There's never any pressure. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's fine. Like I, I, I enjoy that sort of meanderingness of these sort of stories and, and as I've kind of done this podcast more and more, I'm sort of like, I think, you know, for me, this podcast is also a way for me to listen and also get to know people in different ways. And, uh, for me, at least what's also just as important is like the stories that surrounding it. Right. And sometimes there isn't a, it, there is not a clear answer to why someone does something and, I think like your the entire story that you told about, you know, your family and how it sort of weaved into your poetry was a very long and complex one that I think it probably wouldn't do it justice to sort of simplify it as in a single line. Sure. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited that we talked and I'm excited to... Uh, you know, to see um, where your poems go after this. And I'm excited to see your new book when it comes out. Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely let you know when it's like close to happening. And maybe I'll even send you like an early copy or something. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's really sweet of you. I can't wait. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, 
www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.